The 1990s in the United States could be described as an era of political turbulence. Historian Claire Bon Potter has described it this way. By the 1990s, politics in the United States are actually kind of falling apart. She says we have the culture wars, we have the shift of conservatives into the Republican Party. There's increasing populism in the Republican Party and increasing centrism in the Democratic Party. In other words, politics are really in flux. So how does American culture address these changing forces? Try to make meaning of them. One response to that, Potter points out, is to say, what is this country about? And to go back to the biographies of the founding fathers. This is, in fact, exactly what many folks started doing 20 to 30 years ago in that time of political upheaval. The 90s kicked off an era of renewed interest in the lives of U.S. founders. Biographies, documentaries, exhibits, and national museums all became very popular, telling the story anew of the personalities and circumstances that led to the establishing of the United States. By the 2000s, this genre, now known by historians as founder chic, was in full swing. It was into this new flurry of interest around these founders that in 2004, historical biographer Ron Chernow released a biography on the first secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Chernow's biography was widely embraced, shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, in part because of the unique, gritty, urban spin that Chernow put on his Hamilton depiction. And that spin made his story feel especially relatable, particularly to a young New York playwright of Puerto Rican descent who read Chernow's book on a vacation and was stirred, finding the inspiration for his next theatrical work. The result, of course, is Lin-Manuel Miranda, of Lin-Manuel Miranda reading Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, was the creation of Hamilton the Musical, a cultural phenomenon, which would itself make history for all the norms it upended. It won 11 Tony Awards, it shattered box office records, it broke through culturally in a way that no other contemporary Broadway musical has done. Of course, that's not even to speak of the revolutionary flipped racial casting, which centered people of color as the heroes of these founding stories and the stylings of hip-hop, R&B, and rap as their genres. Hamilton has transformed the way U.S. history is being taught in the classroom as well, as a whole generation of young people is being introduced to the characters in the American Revolution through a soundtrack on iTunes before they ever meet Washington or Hamilton or Jefferson in any textbook. Through the creation of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda took the genre of founder chic to a whole nother level, brought it to Broadway and beyond. What had been an exercise in political and cultural reflection by some historians and others in the Clinton and Bush eras became a phenomenon all its own in the Obama era with its own bold statement about whose stories would be told and who gets to tell them in our own time. Well, today's the second teaching in a series I'm calling Faith in the Exile. And in this series, we're looking at an often overlooked period in our tradition, the Babylonian exile. Two weeks ago, I shared a bit of a history lesson, giving context to the whole era. 
So if you missed it, you might want to go back, listen in on YouTube later. But the broad strokes version is that the Babylonian exile was a time in the 6th century BC when what was left of Israel, this, this small state called Judah, was conquered by the neighboring Babylonian empire. And the Babylonians destroyed much of the capital Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. They carted most of the inhabitants off to Babylon to live as exiles, essentially refugees in a foreign land. The era ended up lasting about 75 years. So we're looking at this exile in this season because all of us, I think, are living through a difficult season. We're living in the midst of this pandemic with all that that's upended, the losses that, that continue to mount socially, economically, as well as the mounting loss of life. We're living through a moment of racial reckoning around our, our nation's history of racial injustice and the social unrest that has brought. And we have this contentious election season underway, just to name a few of the tensions we may feel. I think many of us can resonate with a season of prolonged national, even global crisis, perhaps more than in any other era we've lived through. So as a community, I'm inviting us to consider if our faith tradition has wisdom and insight and on living through such a season and being shaped by God in the midst of it, might this exile be some of where we find it? As I mentioned, the exile isn't an era a lot of preachers really visit very often in my experience, but despite the lack of attention this, ex this era often gets in our spiritual tradition, the Babylonian exile played a significant role in the development of the Jewish faith, and by extension, the Muslim and Christian faiths as well. There was work that was done in that time that impacts all of us still today even if we are unaware of it. And that work, I think, also might give us guidance around how we too might spiritually journey through our own seasons of exile and what some of the work we might have to do in this season might be. So, as our entry into this conversation, I want to consider together a psalm that many scholars surmise probably comes to us from the time of the Babylonian exile. I will say the Psalms are particularly challenging to date, but I think it's a reasonable guess that this Psalm is giving voice to the crisis that the exiles living in Babylon had found themselves in. So we're gonna to take together a brief look at Psalm 44. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Though you, through you we push back our enemies, through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword did not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy. 
and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. Skipping ahead a bit. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. So I'm bringing our attention to this psalm for a couple of reasons. First, simply to note, clearly this is a psalm of lament. You can hear the deep sense of distress our writer is feeling. If there are places we connect with being in a season of exile, we might resonate with that distress. But I'm actually primary interested primarily interested for our purposes today in the first part of the psalm. It might not seem remarkable to us, but where the psalm actually begins illuminates one of the most important parts of the sacred journey that the exiled people of God experienced during their time in Babylon. It's demonstrated in the first words the psalmist speaks, setting the tone for the rest of what he or she has to say. We have heard it, with our ears, O oh God, our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. We have heard it with our ears. Our ancestors told us. Why is that significant? The psalmist is rooting their whole reflection on this predicament they are in, not in the details of their current challenging reality. They're going to get there to be sure. But that's not where they start. No, the poet here begins by looking backwards, looking to the words of their ancestors. And this brings us to the first point I wanna lift up today. Seasons of exile ask us to examine the stories that have brought us to where we are. A fundamental work of the exile is the work of remembrance. A fundamental work of the exile is the work of remembrance. You see, the people of Judah had been stripped of their land. They'd been stripped of their king. They'd been stripped of their temple, the centerpiece of worship where they perceived God to dwell on earth. They'd been carried off a thousand miles to Babylon, told to make a life in a foreign land. This was a profound experience of distress and disorientation. Most of what identified these people as the people of Judah, the remaining remnant of the people of Yahweh, most of that has been taken from them. But though much of their communal identity has been stripped away, there's one thing that Judah's captors cannot steal from them. They could not take from them their story. Retaining this story, holding on to the memories of their people, remembering the history of their community, the community's connection to God, that this becomes a primary way that the people of Judah survive as a culture and a faith. In so doing, the exiles and the generations that followed immediately after them also compiled a work of remembrance that has impacted the whole globe for millennia. For us living in a society that expects nearly universal literacy, 
it might be hard for us to remember that the world was not always one that engaged the written word. It was not always a literate world. We as humans did not always have written words to read and consider and interpret. We had communication to be sure, we had tradition, we had story, but it was not largely set down in documents, it was oral, spoken, sung, repeated around the fire. For much of the early age of humanity, written language was a technology that did not yet exist. And as is often true of technology even today, when it was first introduced, it was only available to a privileged few. Now, if you grew up in church, perhaps in synagogue, you might have been taught a tradition that Moses wrote the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, books that observant Jewish people would call the Torah. In some circles, it's spoken as a genuine article of faith that must be accepted that a historical prophet named Moses sat down and took pen to parchment to compose these foundational texts. And while those, the academics who spend time actually studying those ancient texts and how they came to us in Hebrew quickly identify a number of challenges to that proposition, one of the most basic is this. From the archeological and historical evidence that we have, the era of the Exodus, where Moses would have like led liberated slaves to their promised land, would have likely had to take place six or seven centuries before written communication was widely available. Six or seven centuries before written communication was available. There simply wasn't the technology for Moses to write the Torah down and for that text to be maintained for centuries. Now, it's certainly possible that a Moses or others of his generation began an oral tradition that carried forward for centuries before it was eventually written down. But whether that's the case or not, what we do know is that the written word didn't really begin to become a widespread phenomenon until the seventh or eighth century BC, about a century or two before the Babylonian exile. So most of the earliest texts that we find in our Hebrew Bible or what some Christians call the Old Testament seem to have their origin in that era. Still, the Hebrew Bible as we know it was not any kind of singular authoritative entity when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. Biblical scholars from Judaism and Christianity alike agree. It was in the exile that the Bible as we've come to know it began to come into being. It was in the exile that the Bible began to come into being. You see, during the 75 or so years that the leaders of Judah found themselves in Babylon, as they sought to hold on to their identity as a people, these religious leaders and scholars of the day took upon themselves the work of compiling all the myths and poems and histories and wisdom writings and so on that were now starting to circulate amongst their people. The earliest librarians came on the scene and began the process of shaping their culture in a profound way. They studied these texts. They edited them. They composed portions of them. They perhaps updated some of the written words with the oral traditions they were hearing. New insights about the nature of Yahweh they were gaining as a result of their experience in the exile 
And as these early researchers, anthologists, librarians, writers arranged these texts and shared them with their community, as they gathered in the earliest synagogues, and some of the first rabbis shared these written words and taught on them, the community was shaped in a new way. It began to be a community of faith that centered sacred story, communicated through a written text in a way that it never had before. We have heard it with our ears, O oh God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days. The genuine truth is, without the Babylonian exile, we likely would not have had the Bible we have today. This set of ancient texts that for better or for worse has influenced culture for multiple millennia throughout the globe. This same Bible would evolve. It would have more texts added to it by both Jewish and Christian writers in the centuries after the exile until eventually an established set of texts would be decided on and canonized. This same Bible would eventually be one of the primary drivers of mass literacy, at least in the Western world. When about a thousand years after the exile, Gutenberg created a printing press and Martin Luther argued for the right for people to read this Bible in their own native tongues. All of this began because a group of displaced people in a time of national crisis recognized that they needed to remember their story. Last week, we took some time to share the story of the last six years of Haven's existence since Jason and I moved to Berkeley. And I don't know about you, but in the midst of our time of communal exile, I found it so helpful to take a moment to step outside of this moment and reflect on the bigger story we're each a part of. We remembered together the things that we sensed God speaking to us from the beginning and the invitations we were receiving years ago before many of you even knew Haven existed. We heard reflections from some of the folks who were a part of those early years as they named the ways they were shaped by being a part of that beginning Haven history. We remembered challenges, significant challenges that we've endured as a community before and the ways that God continued to shape our story and give us pieces to hold on to that got us through those treacherous times. And all of this for me was restorative as it gave me hope that this same divine spirit that has been at work, I believe in me for decades and this community for the last six years, that same spirit is with us still and will carry us through this exile too. Like the psalmist in Babylon, we remember, we have heard it with our ears, O oh God, what you did in days long ago. And in God, we make our boast all day long, we can praise your name forever. The work of anthologizing stories and sharing them in community helped the displaced people of Judah remember who they were. It was an important work of the exile. But this work wasn't just about preserving their culture. The care devoted to the stories of the past also served another important function, and that's the second thing I want us to consider this morning. 
we needed to take in the stories from our past in order to make meaning of our present. We need to take in the stories of our past in order to make meaning of our present. Now, though the work of creating the Bible as we know it began in earnest during the exile, there aren't very many actual original, there aren't many voices in the Hebrew Bible that speak like original content from that period. There just were only a couple of prophets who prophesied through that era. And one of them was Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet through this period, and he begins his book with this dramatic story of his calling to prophesy in Babylon to the exiles. Now, his prophetic visions are filled with lots of fantastical imagery. If you read Ezekiel, you'll pretty quickly see a lot of bizarre things going on. Just a heads up. If you want like a kind of a trippy read, go ahead and read Ezekiel. I just want to highlight one part of Ezekiel's calling story, though, because I think it affirms this second purpose of this core work of study and remembrance in the exile that we've been discussing. And this comes right after God has called Ezekiel to go and prophesy to his people exiled in Babylon. Picking it up at Ezekiel 3.9. And then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. I don't know about you, but in the context of everything we've been considering, I find this imagery of the prophet sent to the exile being fed a scroll, a powerful one. Students of this passage often get caught up in questions of like whether or not a historical man named Ezekiel actually literally ate a scroll of parchment or not, and whether it actually tasted sweet. To me, this is missing the point. For me, the text is relevant because it communicates the heart of what a leader called to lead in a season of exile needed to understand that in order to speak divine truth in the exile, we must be shaped by the words that have brought us to where we are, even when the words are difficult and painful, words of woe. In the image, the communication of God is found through taking in word and words. We must be fed by this work of remembering. Perhaps the Ezekiel story with its evocative imagery of eating the scroll and tasting its sweetness reminds us that just a casual relationship with the stories that are meant to shape us isn't enough. It's not enough just to hear a story, to skim it, to, to acknowledge it and move on. If the stories of our past are going to do a work of transformation and renewal in us, if they are going to shape our identities in important ways and speak meaning into the times we're living in, in the midst of our exile seasons, we have to digest these stories. We need to take them in. 
We need to fill ourselves with them in deeper ways. So they shift who we are. They transform our way of seeing the world. We are in a moment where we are having a national conversation around the stories that have shaped us and how culturally we need to listen to other stories that have too long been silenced in order to better make meaning of our present. Just this week, many non-Black Americans became aware of a couple of events for the first time. The massacre of Black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Juneteenth. This broader conversation around racial justice in our nation is causing white America, as well as non-Black people of color, to consider more deeply the stories that shape the African-American experience. While Black communities have long celebrated the 19th of June as the day when slavery reached a, a fuller ending. Once the word reached the last slaves to be liberated in Texas in 1865, this year, many white and non-black communities of color learned of and participated in Juneteenth events in their neighborhoods, through their workplaces, on, in social media, and so on. This happened as we, as a global community, began to name anew we need to go beyond the stories of folks like the Founding Fathers. We need to take in a broader set of stories into our collective consciences if we are to make new meaning and truly confront injustices in our time. Just yesterday, a group of us from Haven joined with many, it sounds like millions around the country to participate in the Poor People's Campaign Digital Moral March on Washington. Over 50 years ago, Dr. King began a movement called the Poor People's Campaign that sought to bring people together across racial and religious lines to center the needs of those most affected by public policies that oppress the poor. In recent years, this moral fusion movement has been revived in our time by organizers like Reverend Dr. William Barber III and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. Yesterday in their virtual march on Washington, much of the event, most of the event, was spent listening to stories of those who are most impacted by poverty. The organizers of the event understood that a large part of the problem, the problems that ail our country right now, the reason we have so, such an unjust society is because we're not listening to the voices of the poor. We're not being shaped by those who are being harmed by public policy that strips people of health care and education and a living wage and clean air and water. And I could go on and on in naming the fundamental parts of human life until we listen to their stories, until those stories become part of us. We cannot be transformed in our exile into the people God would have us be. It wasn't just Ezekiel that came to understand you have to take this text in and embody it if you're going to make meaning in the exile. The community in the exile that was beginning to center the written word also came to understand that they needed to digest the words of God for them to speak meaning to them too. One of the places this is most clear 
is found in a passage in Deuteronomy that has, had, has held central significance in informing Jewish life since the era of the exile and long beyond. In this passage, readers are brought back in the story to the time of Moses. And as the story of the law being given is related in Deuteronomy, they hear Moses' authoritative voice speak to them about the importance of centering the written words that bring the messages of God and their history and doing this through daily embodied practice. The setup is that Moses has just communicated the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law God, God gave the people at Mount Sinai. And then Moses speaks these words that are some of the most sacred in Jewish tradition to this day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This passage in the emerging Bible of the exile communicates an understanding that has evolved from the time of Moses. It says the communication of God is sacred. It has to be a part of your daily life. Our traditions, our sacred stories, our histories, our community prayers, they must be internalized. They must become written on our hearts. And this happens as we embody learning, develop a depth of relationship with our texts, speaking them to our children, writing them on the door frames of our homes, even binding them to our faces if needed. So we cannot turn from them. As these texts were compiled and edited and revised and taken in and considered in deep ways, new understandings of who God was and how God related to God's people came into focus in the exile. Like Ezekiel, for these Jewish people being fed by the scroll of their stories, opened them up to receive divine insight that could speak into their time. And so with that new understanding, they told their story differently. Like Lin-Manuel Miranda reimagining our nation's founders with dark skin, debating in rap battles and celebrating immigrants. The editors and writers contributing to Deuteronomy reimagined Moses, who lived centuries before the written word, encouraging folks to take in the written word in an embodied way. Our Bible is actually full of this creative reimagining work because human communities have long understood that making meaning of our present means taking the stories in of our past, allowing them to ring in new ways and be spoken afresh with new understanding. We have long understood this is a sacred work. God's voice is actually in the midst of the unfolding dialogue, not any one voice in it, the dialogue itself. And I believe the divine blesses and empowers us to take our place in the collective that considers together, as Hamilton says, who tells your story. So as we conclude, 
I just want to invite us to ponder together. I'm just going to leave you with some questions. What of this exile work I've been describing God might have for each of us to enter into in this season of exile we find ourselves in? Where might the divine be asking us to revisit the stories of our nation, our origin stories, asking collectively, how did we get here? What forces have shaped us? What stories have been silenced and need to take their place in our forming? Where might God invite us as a community of faith to consider our forming in a faith tradition? What are the traditions, what are the texts that have informed us for better and for worse? How do we need to consider the ways we've been marked by these traditions? Where do we need to grow in the voices we listen to and are shaped by? And finally, what work might each of us benefit from in revisiting and considering anew our own individual stories? how they shape who we are. How have they prepared us for this moment? And how might sharing them with one another in this Haven community help us as a community to understand more deeply who God is inviting us communally to be? Throughout this summer, Jeannie and I are gonna explore some new ways that we can bring more of your stories, the Haven community, in to one another so in our time together we can be shaped by each other and become more aware of who god is inviting us collectively to be remembering the past making meaning in the present retelling our stories in new ways as we look with hope to the future this is all sacred work may we grow in it for however long we are in exile. And may the work transform the future we inhabit when from exile we emerge. Amen. <laughs>